Good morning. So to begin the way we always do, no matter who you are or where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I get to introduce someone today that I respect so much. And in the preview, I think I just referred to him as Dr. Cleve Tinsley IV, but I should be saying the Reverend Dr. Cleve Tinsley IV, and because he's both <laughs> and all. Um, I've come to know Cleve through participation in Project Curate that he and Matt Russell are among the leaders of. There are several dynamic leaders in, in the organization. Cleve is brilliant, and he works towards equity and justice in the religious, communal, and academic sectors. When I listen to him speak, I know I'm in the presence of a prophetic voice. His bio speaks for himself. I sent it out in the announcements, a Princeton Divinity degree, a doctorate from Rice, but what I'm coming to really admire and love is his heart and the strength of his integrity. So I'm honored to sit here today with you <laughs> and as we dialogue about what Cleve calls love in action, which is a great follow-up, I think, to last week's talk about fierce love. What does love look like? So on that note, would you, Dr. Tinsley, give us a little bit about your background and tell me about, tell us about how your spiritual beliefs drive the work you do, if at all, yeah, and how yeah. they do. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's great to be amongst such an august, august audience. Um, I've heard nothing but great things about this setting and this class. Of course, I have an appreciation for Holly. Shout out to Josh. Pleasure to meet you again. Um, so that's an interesting question. I really, I look forward to being here, uh, mostly because part of my own research and spirituality has a lot to do with the relationship between psychology and religion. Really, um, the emergence of uh, psychological formats, frameworks, and their critiques on how they relate to women and black folk in particular, um, but also this notion of spirituality and how it's taken on different registers uh, within the psychological study of religion, whether it's analytic psychology, uh, I did a lot of work in sort of object relations theory or, you know, uh, the development sort of of the self and all these kind of notions. When I think about it, all of it, I recognize that when you talk about my own personal history and formative experience, it relates to uh, Union Missionary Baptist Church in Union, Mississippi. Now, this was the place where my great-grandmother um, was not only a member, but also it was a hub to a community of folk who migrated, well, she and her family migrated from Maryland after the emancipation, roughly around 1870 or so. And my presumption is, I don't know from census reports, that we had some family members who had recently been freed in Mississippi. So she relocated to Union, Decatur, and Forest, Mississippi area, which is near uh, the Delta of Mississippi. And Union Missionary Baptist Church was a place where uh, they received a lot of affirmation, they received a lot of dignity, they received a lot of empowerment. And I don't remember much about this place. I'd never been there. I was only between the ages of three and five. I was fortunate at the time she was about 97 years old. Mm -hmm. And I would be dropped off in the summers while my mother would try to find work. And that's a long story. Uh, <laughs> she left my father, the Negro messed up overseas somewhere. And so we came back to Mississippi. And, and this is where I really had relations with my great grandmother. I say I like to say, there were memories for me these hymns that were sung, these um, sayings that were given. We still had an outhouse. Every morning at 90-something years old, she would get her 
hoe, H-O-E, and go outside and, and get the food necessary for us. And so I locate my spirituality in that type of legacy and origin because I recognize I've never uh, been totally disentangled from that, although the registers of how I communicated changes. My mom and I relocated to Gulfport, Biloxi, Mississippi. Later, she found a job, and we moved in what you typically call the under-resourced community, poor, working-class black folk. And there, a lot changed. However, something didn't change. My mother joined Morning Star Missionary Baptist Church, <laughs> right? And so as a boy, I didn't have an option. She would make me go on Sundays. Every now and then, I would serve as an usher. But it was there where I first received any affirmation of a type of oral intellectual capacity. I began reading. I met these church mothers uh, who have always been the backbone of churches. And I began doing things for the pastor at that time. But I never really professed any type of uh, Christian belief. I just was there. It was a part of my community. And it was a place where those of us who didn't have access to a lot of uh, tools, at least intellectual resources, were able to kind of think through what it mean, meant to sort of be a black person in the rural South. Uh, I went on to college, Mississippi State, and I traded the church for the frat life for a bit, you know. Didn't really think about religion and God in that, in that first sense. And, um, but it was when I moved back, moved to Houston during my third or so year of undergraduate, I had the opportunity to work at what was called, you all called it Houston Lightning Power Company then. So I was about, eight, I was about 18 years old, and for some reason, these folks took a liking to me and said, hey, we want you to come work as a student engineer. I came to Houston um, and was in Houston for about I don't know, six or seven years or so when, when something happened, where this, this type of crisis, this existential crisis happens, and all I had to remember was my mother's faith, my great-grandmother's faith, in these missionary Baptist churches. And I remember at that moment, um, I began crying aloud to something, whatever it was, that, listen, I'm alone here, don't have much family, uh, but I got some questions. And so <laughs> when I wanted to wrestle with these questions in the community, I looked for a church. And guess what kind of church it was? Missionary, missionary Baptist. <laughs> Colored Missionary Baptist Church on Telephone Road. I was in my early 20s. Now, something happened there when I went. I noticed everybody there was above 60 years old, right? <laughs> And I'm like, whoa, like, okay. And so in my mind, I said, okay, here's what I figured. You know, after about three weeks or so, I said, all right, so I, I think this religion thing is something you do when you retire, right? That's so funny. <laughs> so I said, you know, I'll come every now and then. It's a great community, but I'm not really feeling this. So, you know, uh, went away. And it wasn't until, I, I guess, about, about 25, 26 or so, I met a, uh, a young man and another young woman while working in engineering. And they said, hey, man, we're part of this community. I said, what kind of community? Church community. I said, man, ain't nobody at church people for old people. You know, <laughs> the pastor probably, if it's a black church, pastor probably, you know, eat fried chicken. I mean, ain't they done, you know? And um, I went to this community. I was shocked. It was a community in the middle of Acres Home, but there was a young pastor, about 30-something years old, and it was a whole bunch of young folk, right? I was like, whoa, this looks like a really vibrant community. Uh, and it was first there when I began to really think seriously about uh, the myths, the rituals of Christianity, and the ways in which that they were helpful to folk, especially on the underside of society, right? What does it mean, what does it mean to be a person uh, who doesn't have access to other templates for thinking through their existence? Um, how does their Christianity relate to them? Mm -hmm. So that's what our, my relationship, I think, with religion and really Christianity specifically began to become more robust. It was there where I first professed a type of Christian faith, and three months after that, I said, listen, 
Um, this is not something that I play with. I don't understand how y'all come to this stuff and don't take it seriously. So three months later, I felt a nudge and said, hey, I've been summoned to a type of service to humanity. More so, I felt a sort of nudging and service to my community. And because of all of my exemplars at this time were folk, really Martin Luther King, right? I said, hey, the way to do it is to become a religious minister. So hey, doc, I got a calling, right? Now, our tradition is a bit different. We don't have to go to seminary and go away and get authenticated before we become ordained. So six months later, I'm preaching my first summit, sermon. Eight months later, I'm hired on staff. Don't know what the heck is going on, right? <laughs> but, I mean, our loving community the way it is, here I am, 27 years old, folks coming to me for counseling. I'm like, and I was honest, listen, I can't really counsel you on that. I don't know, I'm not married, I can't really help you with that. But I'm baptizing folk, I'm marrying folk, putting them in the ground, saying something. Sure, I made a lot of mistakes, but hey, they loved me, right? Um, but it was there where I really first learned about community and justice and, and what that meant. What I always appreciated about this community is it was there that I learned everything I know now about what it means to be in equitable relationships, not only with other people. Now, there were problems there, right? There was obvious misogyny. There was homophobia. There was a whole bunch of stuff there that existed. And it worked for me. Why? Because I'm a cishet black African-American male. In this tradition, you know, we're at the top of this hierarchy. And so I didn't have to leave it because I didn't experience as much oppression in that setting that's supposed to be more liberative, right? Uh, but as a young minister, I was able to kind of move through that. It was these communities. I remember Sister Beverly used to pray for me all the time. I remember these folk uh, who would help me get through difficult moments. And it's also that I learned about what true solidarity was. Mm -hmm. uh, this church was the first one that had a sense of social consciousness. So Sylvester Turner, I knew him long before he became popular amongst most folks and became mayor. He would run together with all these ministers, Ralph West, James Dixon, all these folks when they were younger, I was around them and I would see them in action. Um, and though I had some ethical and political disagreements with them, what I appreciated was their commitments to community and this was the only way that I saw them happening. Now something changed for me. Um, I felt I needed more theological education, although I'd been ordained or whatever, I felt like, no, I need to be more informed, and so I decided to pursue seminary education. Now, yes, I went to Princeton, but that's not how the story happened, right? Uh, I really started at Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary here in Houston, their extension down here, because, hey, I'm on church, and as far as I understood it, I'd be committed to this church the rest of my life because I was serious about my sense of calling to this church. Uh, but while I was there, I had some questions. They were teaching me about some North American Missionary Board and all their methods of doing things. I had problems with it. I said, well, I don't understand what this has to do with folk that I work amongst every day. Uh, pastor who's at this church decides to send me to Dallas, Texas, uh, to this great conference where all these African American ministers are. And I met a man named Cleophas LaRue, who's a homiletician at Princeton Seminary. And it was a room full of 200 people. And everybody was asking questions, but I had a question about really homiletical theory. I said, listen, man, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but this, I'm not getting any of this stuff over there at Southwestern. He gave me a card and said, call me, young man. And um, later on, he, I sent him an email. He sent me an email back. Next thing I know, he just said, tell you what, uh, come out here. He buys me a ticket, flies me to Princeton, and I didn't apply at all. I just went to the register. He took me to dinner around. He introduced me to a couple of professors and said, hey, man, uh, the deadline for applications is in three days. So I need you to go home and write something, get it to me right away. I said, all right, man, you know. Now, my friends know me. I don't really like, unless I'm inspired, I don't really like, deadlines don't mean much to me unless I'm inspired, right? 
<laughs> so, uh, so I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I'll, I'll see if I'm feeling that. You know, I go home and uh, so the night before, I said, you know, I need to go ahead and do this thing, right? And uh, <laughs> and so this is what I do. I write him and I say, hey, um, listen, you're not gonna get that tomorrow, but I can have it to you about two days later. You don't understand the deadline. <laughs> Hey, everybody else has been submitted their application. I say, I get it, but hey, if this God thing is real, and hey, you know, <laughs> if it's meant for me to be there, it's all, it's all gonna work out. And he was like, you know what, you're right, you know. So all that happens, and when I was in seminary, something changed for me. I began to ask questions about, more questions about, around social ethics. What does Christianity have to do with the plight, not only of me individually, but as a people? And then I began to become interested in sort of uh, pragmatism. People like Dewey and uh, William James at first. Purse was interesting to me. Uh, but then I began reading for the first time folks like James Baldwin and W.B. Du Bois. And uh, these folks began to stir a different kind of intellectual imagination in me while I was still pursuing my sense of call. And so I moved back to Houston because I was recruited to come back to a church here. Uh, and while I was working there, I still had critical questions. I said, well, I still got some problems with some stuff going on. And so my interest changed from social ethics then uh, to more religious stories more broadly. I was interested in how, I was interested in translation work. In what ways can the narrow conversations about my black evangelical Christian belief apply to a wider audience? Is this a different register of something deeper going on? Is there a wider cosmos of ideas in which we've tapped into but we don't fully comprehend it all, right? And for a long time, I really, I left my black evangelical tradition. And if persons were to press me now, um, I still am an ordained Baptist minister. I'm proud of that. Uh, but I lodge my spirituality in something deeper and wider, something I identify with the latest emergence of the black consciousness movement called black magic, right? Really, it comes from these activists uh, in communities that I was fortunate to meet. Uh, but what I really mean by that is that I recognize, at least for black folk or for African, our spirituality is much more robust and can't be contained in any one type of tradition. So if you'd ask me, Cleve, who are you as a spiritual servant? I have a, definitely a, a prophetic type of mysticism, but it is a type of post-black evangelical Baptist mysticism. <laughs> yeah. What that means is, look, all these traditions have shaped me to be who I am, but I'm also much more than that. So the reason why I'm able to go in and out of all these circles is because I'm not concerned about the categories like a lot of folks are. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, because depending on who the audience I'm talking to, I am that, right? And I'm not, it's not so much that I'm saying I can become that. No, I really am that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If this is a religion psychology group, I'm down with the conversations. Mm -hmm. I got problems with Freud. I like Young. I rock with him. I love individuation. <laughs> I love the Youngians. I just got two good friends who are Youngians. Let's go there. If I'm with my Baptist colleague, listen, I love the Lord. He heard my cry, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Among my atheist and humanist friends, you know, I'm like, fuck yeah. that. We can do what we gotta do, oh, right? Please. So, Apologies, I hope there's no kids here. So what I'm saying is, all, all I'm saying is that I recognize that we all are what? We are human trying to figure this thing out, right? Yes. Uh, but the metaphors, the mythos, the traditions, the rituals in which we participate, these are all for me about community. The danger about community and traditions is that we have the tendency to make them static, we have the tendency to exclusivize them, and we have a tendency to create outsiders because of them. Mm -hmm. And if we take the best of all these traditions, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, atheism, humanism, and all that, we all should be struggling for something, what, more universal, mm -hmm. right? It should be about inclusion and not exclusion. Mm -hmm. Because I still, you know, love the Palestinian 
idea of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know the historical Jesus, but if the historical Jesus is real as we think about it, then this Jesus had a real body, right? Had sexual organs that we can't act like they were not there. So why are we afraid to talk about issues of sexuality, right? right. right? And so right. these are things I say to my Christian audiences, but we're in a different audience. And so I mentioned us thinking about, as I was listening to you, Holly, I was like, man, I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to think out loud about my spirituality because it's, it is complex, and we're getting there. Mm -hmm. I think the end mm -hmm. of our conversation today, we were talking about how complexity or the understanding of complexity can create unity. Mm -hmm. We understand that human and cultural difference is not a problem we have to solve, but something we can appreciate and right. live into, mm -hmm. right? Then we can understand that complexity of each individual makes them unique. We can learn from it. We can grow from it. And I become a much better person the more difference I've encountered and tried to relate to. I love that you just jumped straight to the end. Are we I done did. Now? No, we're not at the end. <laughs> just no. kidding. That's a long way after. Yeah. So let me answer the question. The question yeah. was about. <laughs> yeah, you're going back. Yeah. How does my spirituality yeah. inform my work? Well, really, yeah. the main reason why I think. Um, I love it. My colleagues, my colleagues and I are here is we recognize that for me, the spirituality is really about, you know, and I theorize about it in, in some of my work is, you know, my spirituality really relates to the struggle for freedom equality, dignity, and, and humanity, mm -hmm. right? And so our work really in Project Curate tries to collapse these boundaries. We work with church partners, academic partners, and community partners to try to create coalitions to create real change. What we're trying to say is, I don't care about your ideological position, your ethical position, your political position. Can, I, can we agree to get your foot off people's necks yeah. and create an equal world? Quite then in our individual relationship, we can talk about that kind that's of stuff. Right. So that's how my spirituality informs yeah. it really. Um, from the Judeo-Christian tradition, I really, you know, adhere to Micah's sort of call to us about humility and justice mm -hmm. uh, and what that means and how we actuate that in our lives. Two things came up for me as you were talking. One is uh, Claudia Rankin, the poet and playwright, says, um, how, can we, how can we have these differences? How can we have struggle and stay in this car together? Mm. Uh, I love that idea. Yeah. Um, and another was, as you were talking, Dr. Christina Cleveland mm, um, mm -hmm. talks about not seeing herself in representation in church, mostly because Jesus is pictured as white with blue eyes. And um, until she discovered the Black Madonna, the mm -hmm. image of the Black Madonna, when she was in her 20s, did she see herself represented in church symbolism? So she writes about going on a, I spoke about this a couple weeks ago. She writes about going on a pilgrimage in Europe to mm -hmm. these black Madonnas. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful pilgrimage. So next question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot's going on, obviously, socially and politically. But May I say something about yeah, Christina before please. we move on? Yeah, so Christina Cleveland, if you don't remember, yeah. she just recently resigned from Duke Divinity yes. School. She's a social yeah. psychologist by training. Um, but she also considers herself a public theologian. Mm -hmm. She also has a nonprofit now. And she has an interesting story, right? She pretty much grew up in all white spaces, even mm -hmm. in Christianity, mm -hmm. evangelical Christianity. And while coming and developing at Duke, she became known for being on the front lines of justice. Mm -hmm. But if you follow her Instagram and her stuff, she has an interesting story. She talks about, you know what I recognize? Is these white audiences loved me, but as a black woman, they loved me when I was happy, right? Mm -hmm. When I put right. on a chipper face, when mm -hmm. I buy, and so, Finally, in her resignation letter, she said, you know, this is the real stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. It's easy for y'all to accept me one way, but can y'all really accept some of this other stuff? And she talks about an interesting story. Mm -hmm. And so her, she really emphasized the black Madonna as being the center representations for Christian depictions. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad, I love that you mentioned her because she's at the cutting edge right now mm -hmm. of thinking through how does my 
spirituality, the ways in which I was constrained by even being on faculty at Duke right. and also in this evangelical tradition. Yeah. She yeah. wrote a pretty scathing letter, actually, yeah, she did. to she Duke did. Uh, yeah. and her leaving. Yeah. Well, much respect for that. Yeah. Um, but the next question is a little bit about what it means to be an ally. Cleve and several others who are also here are participating in a, um, in a podcast that I loved the first podcast you guys did, and part of it was about the difference between friendship and solidarity. Mm, and yeah, as yeah. we exist in community, distinguish for us a little bit this difference between friendship and solidarity. Yeah, how many of you listen to podcasts, by the way? Are you listening? If you listen to podcasts, uh, we just recently decided to. It's right there. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. I don't know the exact, so kind of would know it at the yeah. end. You can talk about it yeah. more to me. Uh, but we talk about really what our conversation here is about. Uh, me and Holly said, let's talk about love and justice and what their relationship to me. They are um, inextricable. What I mean by that is you can't really express whatever notion or understanding of love you have for another person without also considering justice and equity in that relationship, whether it's on a personal level or a community level. Right. Uh, in my partnership, in my relationship with my spouse, uh, Lanicia, right? She is a black woman. We are in a partnership together, but we don't think of each other as, look, my husband, my wife type of thing. She's a free uh, agent, uh, has equal rights and equal power in our relationship, right? So I can't think, I can't claim love for her, right? If in any kind of way I'm trying to dominate or stifle anything that she offers to this world. And she offers a lot. And she offers a lot, but I also recognize how we've been socialized in society. There are ways that our partners, mainly men, can stifle a lot of what these people offer because, listen, you're supposed to submit to me, that kind of stuff, right? Not understanding these type of problems with these tropes and patriarchy throughout these history, through the history of this stuff. And so I can't really say, look, I love you, but also be envious of you right. or jealous of you. I can't say I love you and say, no, you can't go there because you're going to get more shine than me, yes. right? Yeah. So, that's right. I mean, that's not, uh, so I can't say I love you unless I'm really concerned about your well-being, but more than that, that we have an equal playing field as much as it's possible, right? And we share certain responsibilities. Look, I don't cook. I know that's a problem. I don't do it. Neither does she. So what we do, we got a large budget for eating out. It's a problem, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? I have a cleaner. You know what I'm saying? He, he, he says, Look, so clean if I, if I keep doing the cleaning. And I think yeah. it's like, I don't mind. I can clean up some stuff yeah. majorly. I can do some cleaning. So I, I clean and stuff. And when Alicia does it, kind of compensate for that, sometimes she's like, you know what? Since you clean up, I, you know, I do the running and go get the food. We'll make that compromise right. or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So we compromise. But it's never there's no expectation around stuff. Yeah. No. Every day we make agreements about yeah. how to participate in this partnership. Yeah. Uh, and whenever I do, I try to never give any advice on relationships. I just tell folks, look, now, I'm glad you're happy and excited about your new relationship you got going on. But let me ask you some questions, right? Yeah. Is it really a kind of equal thing? Or is this person kind of like you know, really in it for what they've been. I said, how do you know that? Well, let me just ask several questions about this, right? If you don't recognize justice in the beginning or that person's perspective, odds are, I don't care how excited you are right now, right. in a couple of months you'll learn that, may, you know what, there are some signs of some stuff I should have recognized earlier. And so I was talking to Holly about that and saying, listen, you know, we can't really talk about love without justice. I really borrow a phrasing from Cornel West who says, look, just love is what, justice is what love looks like in public. And I just say, no, that applies on an individual level. Well, if you don't understand justice, then you can, if your partner doesn't understand justice, then you really have the right to question whether or not they understand what love really is. Because yeah. yeah. love is already a complicated term. Yeah. Three 
Greek translations, we use it all the time. Everybody yeah. we meet, we love, right? I love you. I love you, too. I love you, too. I love you more. That's right. You know? But we just use the term indiscriminately, right? Yeah. And so these type of commitments to each other about, listen, whether you use the words or not, I mean, it's, it's a type of biblical trope, right? I can tell by your actions whether or not you really care for me. Mm-hmm. And if you're around the person long enough, you'll get to know them regardless of what they say. And that works both ways. Whether somebody cusses you out one day, they could have been having a bad day. If you're around them for three years, you'll know who they really are. Right? Yeah. yeah. Some people can club they love you every day, but every day in three years, they've been trying to stifle you mm-hmm. and make your mm-hmm. life miserable. Mm-hmm. Right? Which one is the one that really loves you? The one who says it the most or the one who acts it out? That's right. Right? So these are just fundamental things, I think, that exist across canons um, that I think are interesting. So I'm looking at my spouse a lot, <laughs> okay. and I get a little weepy whenever I think about that partnership and being in solidarity, and yeah. I think that's probably the most beautiful way in which we've grown over the last 13 years, yeah. is kind of growing up as two oak trees, I might say, yeah. um, working together and supporting one another. I'm um, sorry, I need to back up to it. So yeah. the question was really about solidarity as allyship, too. Yeah. So this is, talk, I talked about it on a personal level, but I want as it relates to community, it relates to this. Uh, the difference between solidarity uh, as an ally and, say, as a friend, where it becomes important in justice realizing is this. Um, as a community, those of us who were involved in struggles for black justice mm-hmm. first and foremost, before we were concerned about universal struggles. So mm-hmm. anybody, uh, my contention is that you really can't effectively understand what it means to struggle for freedom and justice with just a one narrow perspective. The only reason why I started working with and participating and befriending white folk, to be honest with you, was because I recognized that, hey, my struggle for justice relates to a larger struggle for justice. And I can't claim to have a Christianity or anything if I'm not at least willing to think about what it means to be in relationship with folks who are different than I am. I can't say appreciate my difference if I don't appreciate yours, right? So that's really why I became part of Project Curate, you know, me and Matt where I said, listen, learn how to become allies. But here's the problem with, with white folks, right? Y'all want to start with friendship all the time. Mm-hmm. Hey, let me go get coffee with Cleve. I've solved the worst way. I had coffee with him, so look, we good. Right. If everybody just have coffee together, the world will be a better place, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and my, that, that, that's, that's most of the contention. Most of the contention is like, yeah, this is a good start. Well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it may seem that way, but the truth of the matter is, it ain't no good start. You know, the good start, the, the better start is if you just give me $50,000 and I'll say, hey, I want to see you do better today, right? <laughs> That's where you can become my friend, really, we're okay? Working, we're working on the plane. Yeah, okay, right. Okay. Give me a coffee. But <laughs> yeah. for black folk, what happens is, in these big tropes of, like, friendship and reconciliation, what yeah. it does is say, look, I want you to care about how I feel before we even talk about some of the impediments that right. exist in your life and how I participate in them. Because mm-hmm. I know if I become your friend, we may not have these hard conversations, right? And so friendship, while should should be the ideal, right? We should all strive for some notion of the reign of community or God or whatever, right? But I'm more, most folks who are oppressed in this society or grieved in our society, whether it's black, those who are experiencing concentration camps or whatever right now in our country, they're more concerned with being free. I guarantee you right now, those who are part of those concentration camps on our borders right now, they don't mm-hmm. care whether or not you be their friend if you say, hey, I can let you go tomorrow right. and set you up in a house. They don't care if they ever meet you. They'll be thankful, mm-hmm. right? And they'll be more concerned about their liberation than they are friendship. Now, if a friendship happens over time, great. But friendship involves so much more on a personal level. That's friendship right. involves a type of sacrifice, right? So I'm more concerned about the allyship, right? If we become allies, friendship may develop, but that's a different type of commitment. 
Friendship is not, hey, I can just go, I just have somebody who just happens to be different than I am. That's right. Friendship means I talk to this person. Friendship means I know about their weaknesses and their strengths and I'm willing to cover them. Friendships mean we make super mutual sacrifices for each other. Friendship cares about somebody when they're in a hospital, mm -hmm. right? So friendship is a deeper level of commitment. You need to work on just being a right a ally, just not speaking or doing things that hinder or stifle the life options of somebody else. Right. And if you can get that right, then you can move toward friendship. Right. Coffee, coffee does this. It's a good start for you. Why? Because it makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you've done nothing to really cross the line of really creating a justice relationship with that person. All right? And I can't turn if you say, if, if at that coffee you're asking this question, listen, you know what, I recognize that I've, I've had certain privileges. I want to have coffee with you. This may not be the best start, but tell me, right, what are some of the tangible ways in which I can participate in your liberation system interested in your friendship? Right. Then you can have coffee with me with me. If you're saying, no, Cleve, I'm having coffee with you, yes, but I'm having coffee with you because I want to liberate you. What that mean? Mm -hmm. And if you come to me, I don't have a problem telling you, look, give me a million dollars. We good. <laughs> Everybody, way. everybody won't do that, but I will. Like, yeah. hey, you know, yeah. Yeah. buy me a yeah. house in River Oaks, put it in your name, let yeah. me stay there. All right? You pay the mortgage. We're good. <laughs> there you go. We're good. Um, you know. What I wanted, you know, I think this. I so for solidarity to occur, friendship doesn't have to be an ingredient, but it can be a byproduct. It can be a byproduct of it. And also, I think one of the things that we, and by we, I mean mostly white folks, is we take a lot of things personally, and. Um, that's a downfall of participating in justice and liberation. Can we not see it as, it is, per, it is both personal and not, yeah, right? Yeah, it, is, yeah. it is personal that we, are, we all need to contribute to a, a struggle for or a seeking for liberation and justice. It should be personal to all of us. It should be, yeah. And yet it's not personal like, oh, you don't want to have coffee with me? It's more that am I here to support equity or am I here hoping you'll be my friend. Yeah, and yeah. I think if one comes before the other, then the friendship follows. Yeah. That's my thought in, in those words, but um, thank you. No, uh, I think there's a valid yeah. need for a type of security in mm -hmm. relation to another. That's valid, mm -hmm. but I think the danger in it and connecting that too. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about those who are also concerned about justice and equality. With mm -hmm. most uh, progressive folk like who are in this room, actually, we're friends. Most of you are not really the targets for us. Most of us pretty much agree. Right? There should be a difference in this world. Mm -hmm. The problem is when uh, relationality and friendship becomes the method by which you think justice should be created. Right? I'm not talking about your individual lives, but I'm saying in, in, in crowds and social circles in which we participate, where persons are coming together to think about what justice means for a disproportionate amount of folk. And what we have experienced, Holly, and you know this firsthand, is uh, folks with power in these spaces get their feelings hurt because they feel like they weren't talked to like they should have been talked to. Right. People are not empathetic to like, hey, I'm at least here in the space. Why right. are you not empathetic and have compassion for me? I'm one of the good persons, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is that that's not the reason why you're here. You're here because you're here to learn how, how to make this world a better place. So right. what is if you're in this space and you spoke to Brandon and she decided not to speak to you back? Mm -hmm. That's going to stop your whole work. Mm -hmm. Then you need to question, am I really committed to the work or right. I just want to be in proximity? Or just want to be liked. Yeah. To somebody else who looks different than I am. That, that is an interesting thing. So Brian Stevenson, uh, director of EJI in Montgomery, mm -hmm. Alabama, uh, Josh and I did a pilgrimage to the museum and lynching memorial. He says you have to get proximate to the problem in order to begin to solve it. 
Proximate um, to the problem is different than very the people, different. Yeah. And I want to distinguish that, yeah. right? Proximate is being willing to get up close. It's sticky. It's hard. It's ugly. It's messy, and it can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. So the proximity is not just oh, I'm sitting next to a, a guy who's a person of color, and oh look, it makes me look good. Or I'm married to a guy who's black. That makes me down. Mm. It's not. It's more that getting proximate to it is being willing. I think to struggle. Yeah. That love is struggle in some ways. Yeah, that's good. So, I love how yeah. you said love is struggle. Love is the struggle, yeah, over and against the relationship. I mean, there are hopes of the relationship. So, I, you know, my friends and colleagues are here today, and I really value and respect them and regard them a lot. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very careful about how I try to relate to them even in public spaces. Even. So what I mean by that, just like you all, talk, we talk about black, white or stuff, there are ways they, they call me dip bait. There's a reason why I do that, too, right? <laughs> so, like, they would speak somewhere in some places, and like I will come in, yeah. That's, uh, we'll talk about that after if you didn't get that. We'll talk about that. <laughs> it's it's, yeah, I'll talk, we'll talk about that more later. What that means? What that means is I will show up to places for a minute, see them in the space, and then I leave out before the audience disperses, right? Because my thing is I want to express support, but I'm not there to take up space, right? I'm mm -hmm. literally there to support. So I will come late, see you, support you, and get the heck up out, right? Because I'm not trying to take any space. I'm just there because I want you to see that I value what you contribute to this world, right? I'm not there to talk to your audience, though, right? And truth of the matter is, I don't like people that much, you know? <laughs> We're going to be real. <laughs> you know, I don't mean that. I love people, but I'm saying I'm an introvert, so it's hard yeah. for me in social yeah. times sometimes. And so I do that, but, but I also I really want to be in these spaces, though, right? But crowds do something to me if sure. I'm not addressing them, right? So I come in. I support no matter what it is across, but, but then, you know, I try to get out and I make sure, hey, I was there, please don't take it the wrong way, but you know, I don't do crowds like that, I had to get up out of there, right? Um, but that's the same thing if you apply it to your, your, your justice work. If you're concerned about these issues, go to the space not to be recognized, mm -hmm. but go there to do the work, and so what if you're acknowledged or you form a friendship, right? Mm -hmm. I love these people, but honestly, if they decide not to be my friend, that wasn't gonna stop me from supporting them. Right. Could you do it anyway? Is really is the question you're yeah. asking? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, we we put this slide in with the quote: "The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice." Martin Luther King used this a lot in his movement. It was supposedly originated by an abolitionist and Unitarian minister named Theodore Parker, who was also a transcendentalist. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I'm curious: Do you have this hope? And if so, where do you experience justice? There's a two-part answer to that. So, like, yeah. and, and I do have this hope. Um, well, I, I would say this. I will say I have been affected a lot by my humanist friends, and so I would disagree with King's use of this mm -hmm. sort of notion now. Mm -hmm. you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Mm -hmm. uh, part of what made me interested in having a more centered position is I recognize, like Du Bois, he talks about, you know, this is rooted in sort of King's progressive Christianity, right, right when he started saying this, and transcendentalism from Emerson and all these other folk. Uh, but for me, what I recognize is that we have to recognize and accept the meaning and possibility that's in the struggle itself, even if we recognize that we may never see the liberation that happened right. right. But also, if you think about that, it's not too far off of what these uh, canons and witnesses talk about, this whole thing about Hebrew 12, about the, these folk who persevered, but they never really saw the in, right. in their time. And what, that, what I come to understand about that is yeah, I see. The, the Ark of the Moral Universe is very long. We've been waiting on this Jesus to come back for a very long time. Every year, <laughs> Jesus is coming back, right? <laughs> uh, Every day. So, you know what I'm saying? And the struggle, 
It seems like it's going to continue to go on forever. But I'm also like a pragmatist in this regard. And I, and I, I left you know, the James in tradition and started thinking about pragmatism through Du Bois, who talks about it this way. He says, look, um, I don't have a problem with belief. I don't have a problem with symbols and notions of God. And that's where I stand either. Why? Uh, but I do have questions as it relates to, to the properties of the cosmos and these symbols that we use. What I mean by that is my own personal experiences and my historical consciousness of folks, namely black folk in this country, makes uh, the idea of God being this personal deity cosmically or consciously ruling the universe toward the good of all humankind a belief that's hard to sustain yes. sometimes. Mm -hmm. Why? Because some folk have always been on the underside of that's this. That's right. Right? So who's liberation right? are we talking about? And so, you know, who's liberation and who's justice are we talking about? Because there's some folk who have never realized it. Mm -hmm. And even, like, the folks I live among today in my community, like, I love my community where I live at uh, because people are just real there, right? And I see every day they struggle to just take a bus somewhere. Mm -hmm. And their idea of justice is, is, is way different. And so I do, you know, I, I, I'm an optimist. I, I believe in hope. I believe... In small circles, we use this scaling structure through frequencies, Andrew, Adrian Marie Brown, that if we can create small pockets and windows of liberation for people, mm -hmm. will they feel more free than yes? But we also, but I also recognize I'm cynical about the power structure. What really, what motivation really do you, as folks in power, really have? To, why would you want to give up your your privilege? Right. I talk to my friend Matt about that all yeah. the time. I said, yeah. I understand why you you know you're feeling this right now. Because right now, you know, to be frank with you, yeah. you got it pretty good. Yeah. You know? Right. Why would anyone want to Why would you want to leave this? Yeah. I see why you don't want to go. Yeah. No, I see. Because you got it pretty good. One of the things I, I, I want to um, throw out to our mostly white audience is that there may not be a giving up if there's a sharing with, right? If there's a, if there's a, if all are included at the table, we're all participating in the meal, mm. right? As opposed to one person inviting or a group of people inviting to the table. Yeah. If it's just an open table, then there's no giving up. There's a, which doesn't, which doesn't mean to say we, there won't be sacrifices and there won't be things that are lost. But those things that are lost, I think, don't outweigh the things that are gained in mm. um, seeking true equity. Yeah. Um, but... So this, actually, we've gotten, we went from personal, and we're getting a little bit bigger going towards my favorite topic. Okay. And I love that the room is decorated in planets, and we're going to the moon. Uh, this is my work in cosmology that is mirrored today. Okay. <laughs> Who knew that? Oh. Um, but often, in the last couple of weeks, I've talked about from a cosmological view. This is maybe the fourth time I'm repeating it. Last week, I said it takes seven times to really let it stick. So <laughs> here's number four. The three principles of universe formation are differentiation, specification, and communion. And these three things are true in every facet of being. Our body is a really good example. It has a lot of unique, specific parts that work together in harmony. If one part isn't working, the body isn't working wholly. This is true in every facet of being. But to keep us alive, all of these things need to work together. Mm. Communion is not to be confused with like kumbaya, right? <laughs> it's, but it is the idea that all things are important, all things are needed in order to work together. The natural world does mirror this for us, um, but it's also, the natural world is also chaotic and destructive. So it, it, it is not only beauty and pleasure. 
But humans with self-conscious awareness, we actually have the capacity to think past or to evolve past destruction and cruelty. That's the gift of self-conscious awareness, is we can, we can outthink cruelty. Um, we are also infants in mm. this whole mm. 14 billion year history of the universe. Humans are only 300,000 years old. So that also means consciousness is young. So we're still in this process of developing consciousness, of developing the idea that we can, in fact, think past cruelty. So given this theory mm. of communion as a law of nature, mm -hmm. what do you think that does to relate to living in community? Yeah, I, I talked to, we talked about this briefly, mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. um, how all of these things have been, I guess, uh, executed or events throughout this religious consciousness struggle of all these communities. So for instance, you know, you mentioned seven, you mentioned three, how numerology is, mm. uh, applies and the notion of three, the notion of the figure of communion, right? Mm. All these are things that are part of Christian traditions, Jewish traditions, all these traditions. And what's interesting about um, the evolution or, or evolutionary psychology, I would say, or mm -hmm. how it, uh, one of my earliest thinkers is what, Friedrich Henry Myers or whatever, the survival of the personality beyond bodily death, mm -hmm. and how he related to these folks in the late 19th century, and how folks are just really grappling, what I think, with, with mystery. And so we use these terms of the cosmos and consciousness to recognize that, hey, in all of us, there's an innate sense of something more, William James would call it, that we haven't really figured out the right register or category through which to ascribe it to. So yeah, we can talk about communion as being this part of nature or something larger, but it's no different than me than what symbolized when folk have communion every day. That is, it represents a coming together. We wanna say, look, you all matter to how we really function in this world and as a family wanna do it. It's no different than you know, the, the tradition of Sunday dinner uh, amongst African-American families, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Saying we all love each other, we got problems, I may fight you and cuss you out tomorrow, but hey, we a family. Right. Blood is thicker than water, you right? You know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, while I appreciate all these different registers, I guess what I'm really trying to, mm -hmm. to do is say, hey, there's simplicity and complexity yes. too, right? Yes. yes. The only thing humanistic traditions have done is layer stuff with different language that folk have been thinking with through the millennia, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the notion of differentiation, right, and also then communion is right. So, I, so I'm with that. I, I think, I think I'm, I'm with that. What I mean by that is we have to appreciate that nature is much more complex than what we might think of. We only uh, have access to what we know about and what we discover through the sciences. There may be other life forms elsewhere. There may be a consciousness beyond what we're thinking through. All of this stuff is mystery. And I think if we're intellectually and spiritually honest, we have to admit we just don't freaking know. We don't freaking right? know. Yeah. And if yeah. we can just start with that, the problem is everybody has this quest for certitude. James mm -hmm. Dewey has a book by that, this quest for certitude, right? Metaphysics has this mm -hmm. quest for finding out what really is. Mm -hmm. And all we've discovered is that we just don't freaking know everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah, including and, how to be human. Yeah, including <laughs> how to be human, right? And so what ends up happening is all of the vibes that we have, the reason why we really can't relate to each other is because we all have launched and latched our identity onto something. Yeah whether it's social class, race, gender, all that kind of stuff, social economic status, right? I don't fit in over here, but we're gonna start a class over here. I don't fit in here, but I'm gonna start over here. Mm -hmm. And we become a community. But we still, no matter how many communities we form, guess what happens? We still do the same shit, right? 
we create rituals, we create language around our community, right? And for the most part, we still are churches. Mm-hmm. And so I just think we just say, hey, you know, let's. I mean, I had this conversation with folks in the academy as well, right? We go through this whole ritual process. My friends were at this day. I go to this thing called a defense, right? People question me, and as I get through answering their questions, congratulations, you doctor now. Well, hell, I've been doctor since I was born. Y'all just not figuring it That's out. That's right. Right? <laughs> I had this in me you all along. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so all I'm saying is, like, yeah. you know, we got to connect. I think, well, I think it's great that we come around each other versus different languages. So I said mm-hmm. something about Dip Bay earlier. We call each other, you know, king and queen. These are different kind of language registers we use that have meaning for us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. And all I'm saying is, uh, when we think about differentiation and sort of communion, what that does for me is this is another category by which we're saying, hey, we need to get this stuff right. Let's come together, recognize that we're all different. We contribute to the world. But if we can really come together and ever unify, there's, no, there's nothing impossible for us, right? Right. right. Yeah. This, uh, Richard Rohr talks about that on three levels. That There's the small community where you operate in your sort of daily life. There's your larger, broader community, and then there's sort of this universal community. And and, um, to achieve, what do you want to say, spiritual transformation, I guess, we are fluid between all three. Mm. So Mm. our intimate communities to our macro communities to the sort of cosmic community, if you That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, That's good. Yeah. I like Charles Long over Richard Rohr. I like the other folk, but I'm glad you mentioned these folk, right? Um, (laughs) Charles Long is 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 a... uh, religious historian who mm-hmm. does a comparative analysis, for instance, of the psychology of William James and say versus Du Bois, who has this experience when he goes to a country church. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, people like Peter Holmans, who talks about individuation and the young yeah. and psychology. I'm saying that because I recognize whenever I come to these audiences, there's a tendency, not by Holly, we have a conversation. We always lift these things that we think are authoritative, mm-hmm. but honestly, I really don't like Richard Roy. That's okay. Right? You can say that. And, and, and what I mean by that is, like, you know, there are these folks that we, especially in, our, in these elite spaces, that we yeah. lift up as being authoritative, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the only reason why I think, you know, the cosmos or divinity had me go to graduate school as, as, at all was to figure out a pathway where I recognize that the religious consciousness of black folk have always been there, have thought amazing things. They just have not been represented in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm reading the uh, narrative of Sojourner Truth. Okay. And in, um, at the part where she's coming to this realization, she, she's not literate at this point, mm-hmm, yeah. but she comes to the, liter- to the realization that she doesn't believe what the Bible says about God being out there, mm. that it's all, she says, it's all in all. Yeah. And this is an illiterate freed slave yeah, going yeah. on a journey to seek for her kids, to free yeah, her kids. Yeah. And this, she has this realization. She, you know, the wisest among us are folk yeah. who have the experience, the embodied experience of the all being in the all, not That's so the true. academy That's so in true. so many ways. And you're right, we do. We lift up the academy to go, what I'm saying is true. Yeah. But what yeah. what we experience is more true than that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I found, like, and I've never disconnected myself, like, I've been wrestling. I've, I've communicated to uh, my colleagues and my friends since I've graduated. I've been grappling with my sense of... Um, Pastoral call, what that means for me, pastoral is different for me. What I mean is, like, what does it mean for me to be in a relationship um, with poor working-class black folk who have similar origins like myself, right? What are some of the ways, what, what am I meant to do? Because that, for me, is a launching point. I never would have went to grad school or anything if I were not this community. Mm-hmm. And so the further and further I go in my professional life, 
what does it have to do with my service to my community, right? And, uh, and I had, haven't figured it out yet, but I recognize that what the academy does do is allow you to have, so long before William James and W.E. Du Bois, there's somebody named Anna Julia Cooper in 1892 came out with this book called Voices of the South. She's never lifted up, right? Mm. And this was a woman who went overseas in Paris and got her doctorate in 1800. Can you say her name again? Anna Julia Cooper. She has this book called Voices from the, of the South, published in 1892. Dropped before 1903, Souls of Black Folk dropped before William James Variety's Religious Experiences. And this is a black woman who got her doctorate in her 80s or 90s, I believe, overseas. But you don't know much about her at all. That's right. She's not in most of the academic canons that you read about. James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time. Pick mm -hmm. that up instead mm -hmm. of some other stuff, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't mentioned people like Hortense Spillers, people who have thought about this stuff rigorously. Mm -hmm but who are not a part of the dominant canon. Right. Dominant meaning white canons, That's right? right. Mm -hmm. We come to these spaces, especially in Christian circles, and they're the same voices lifted all, all the time, uh, which, which frustrates me when I go, especially evangelical Christian circles. Because mm -hmm. these folks, for the most part, I hate to say it, all they do is regurgitate and steal from black folk, but they say it and it becomes golden and they become held. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? We need to revamp the canon. Yeah, they, yeah you know. <laughs> so we lift these voices, and if you do some real research on these folk, Oh, you really are part of this strand is where you got this thought mm -hmm. from. That's interesting. Cornell West has a book called The Evasion of Philosophy, where he traces like Hegel and all these folk, and he relates that to the pragmatist tradition, which is the only American philosophical tradition, of course, starting from these folk. But then he includes folk in the canon, like Anna Judia Cooper and Du Bois and these other folk as well. And what I've discovered is that folk really, you know, in these late, in these spaces, we are sometimes, we just have a tendency to be lazy intellectually and spiritually. We don't ask questions about why somebody who's in front of me saying what they're saying. Where, what is, where are they getting this from? And why, what makes the person that they're quoting authoritative? Mm -hmm. Why do they understand the biblical text this way and other folks understand it this way? Why in the third century were a bunch of books canonized and other books left out? Right. Yeah. What was the relationship to the folk who canonized these texts to the political state of Rome, Men right? Power. That's right. So like, we don't ask these questions and we become so lazy, so that's why we end up becoming exploited by somebody in front of the room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they act like they speak authoritatively to you, they're usually men, right? And they're afraid of you getting in other spaces where they might be exposed, which is why they don't go into them, or they don't bring them to, to front. And I'm like, no, there needs to be a difference. The reason why I'm thinking about ministry again is there needs to be a way in which we expose people to different voices, not just mine, right. right? But how do we expose persons to a whole bunch of stuff? Because if these folks really, if y'all in community and love each other, you have to worry about them leaving you if you're treating them right. Right, that's right. So we have about a minute and a half. Oh, and wow, I'm probably, so sorry. We could probably go on I'm for sorry, another yeah. hour and a half. I've been um, having fun, I'm sorry. No, I love, like, <laughs> I'm like, say more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll, I'll close with this thought, and, and then you can also have a minute to close. I don't have to end is this idea of diversity. I've actually gotten really sick of the word diversity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because often we go, oh, look, we have, I have diverse friends. I have the whole rainbow. My family is diverse. We have the whole color from light. My sons call me light, 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 light brown. <laughs> like, I'm white, y'all. It's okay. Um, to, and to my husband being dark brown, and our kids are somewhere in between. Um, so, yeah, our family is diverse. And then we have a Mexican-American living with us, a Vietnamese Mexican-American living with so, us. Yeah, it's diverse. 
But what does diversity mean when you don't have equity? It doesn't mean much. Um, do you have no. anything to say about that? Yeah, I just would, I, I would use two terms. Like, there's a difference between diversity and inclusion, mm -hmm. right? So, diversity is about representation, right? Mm -hmm. Where equity and inclusion is about a fundamental rethinking of uh, the nature of things, right? So, diversity in this space means, you know what? We got black, brown, uh, indigenous folk that are part of our community. Bless you. Right? But you can have that inclusion, even an overrepresentation of these folks in this room. But what they hear from all the time is Richard Rohr. That's mm -hmm. not inclusion, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's a major difference to saying, no, even what we say in front of this room is going to be different. So Holly and uh, whoever the respected uh, Curly is, Dr. Curly, Dr. Curly is, yeah. uh, they say, no, we're going to make sure every week we bring through folks who represent different understandings of what we're saying to you all. Yeah. We're going to bring through folk who are able to sort of talk about the problems of analytic psychology culture. It didn't emerge to the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. There's a book by Chris Lash thing called The Culture of Narcissism or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, even now in most poor communities, folk ain't got $60 to go to a session every week. That's right. Right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens if we, don't, if we don't think about what equity means as it relates to our discourse, as it relates to uh, persons who are in front of the room, as to what we teach, then we're not concerned about equity and inclusion. We're just concerned about having folk that look different so we can post a picture on Facebook to say, hey, this is... I'm doing good. I'm doing a good yeah. thing. Right. Right? But if you're concerned about equity and inclusion, you're willing to fundamentally rethink everything about your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for us to, like... You know, Brandon and I had this conversation not a couple months. Like, hey, man, you know, we, we thought I'm talking about money now. So we talk about money. What does it mean for me as a black man to have some money? If I got a dollar, how much that mean you got really in your pocket? Mm -hmm. Right? You're not talking about equity and inclusion until you start having those conversations. Right. Yeah. On every level. Yeah, on every level it. of your life, you got to think about yeah. what does it mean for me to be a man in relationship to a woman, to right. be whatever. And it's not always going to be powerful. We had some illustrations that we talked about equity and inclusion. You may still be behind the same structural barriers, but how do we make a life for ourselves in a way that's uh, that realizes justice between us, too, right. going back to that term? And we both liked that last drawing that had the barrier removed. How do yeah. you get to true liberation with the barrier removed? But we have to close. Um, you sure? Y'all yeah, want to go yeah. some more time? They got some people, <laughs> go, to <church. laughs> some people go hear Matt talk. No, I'm oh, just okay, kidding. Great, no, great, I don't think great. he's here this Sunday, yeah, actually. Great, 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 yeah. um, I'm so glad. Thank you so much, Cleve, for being here with us. And Thanks thank, for having me. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah. I want to put this last slide up for there's some folks who participate in Project Curate here. This is the speaker series that's coming for Project Curate in the fall. Uh, I highly encourage you to, re to register and attend. It's a rich, rich, rich experience on a lot of levels. So I can't say it enough, but yeah. thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. And no matter where you go this week, watch your step. Remember, you carry precious cargo. I think I said that backwards, but you got it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Dad. Also, if you're interested, uh, we are talking not just about black movements, but about Latinx movements, about Southeast Asian feminist movements. And we're going to be at the Museum of Fine Arts. And so we are going to create a space where you can come here from communities in Houston that have been here long before we were born, that have participated in different types of struggles. Uh, you can go online at projectcurate.org and learn more about it. 
donate, uh, I think it's $150 for all of them, but even if you can't make it, we're about equity, so we try to support folk who possibly will be there in a the room but can't pay. We're going to make sure that they're there. So if, whether you want to support someone else or whether you come personal, we'd love to see you throughout the city this next semester. Thanks for your time.